Hello, I'm David Park, and this is Beyond the Script. This podcast is for decision makers looking to grow their company. Through our conversations with current game changers, we learn their insights, stories, and tactics that we can use to grow today. When I was working there, actually, there was a communication satellite that was falling out of orbit, and they were worried it was going to fall and hit a population center. And within the satellite, there was um, some volatile chemicals, I think hydrazine, which is like not, not great for people, probably would have killed a bunch of folks. In this episode, we have Ben Williams from XN Technologies, the world leader in autonomous data acquisition for digitally starved industries in GPS-denied environments. Welcome to Beyond the Script. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Well, t- talk to us about your company and your role. So XN Technologies is a world-leading autonomous robotics company for infrastructureless and GPS-denied navigation. What that really means for us is that we can operate on a basis where you don't have persistent communications, you don't have external inputs like GPS that tell you where you are, and you don't have any prior knowledge or infrastructure in a space to help you do the autonomy. And so this is a pretty unique offering. We use it for going underground, for mapping and creating 3D maps of mining areas and construction areas. We're looking at other options as well, but those are sort of primary markets. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know construction has been very slow in technology. Mm-hmm. And then also mining, that sounds pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. It could prevent dangers of miners mm-hmm. going down without knowing yeah. what they're... So uh, the first use case that is yeah. really, really awesome for us is what's called a stope, which is a vertical cavern within the mining industry. And when you do a new blast with you know dynamite, uh, then uh, this is all new to me because I yeah. didn't know the mining market before. So it's interesting even yeah. being able to talk about it. So when you do these vertical blasts, uh, they're super dangerous, obviously, because you don't have anything secured. Rocks continue to fall for a while. It's an unknown space. You don't know what the volume or the geometry is. And so in that case, it's just a lot of unknowns. So the typical procedure then is to send in a survey team that goes into that new cavern or to the edge of that cavern and basically sticks a LIDAR on a stick into the cavern and tries to map from there. It takes a while. You're on the edge of a very dangerous area, so you put people kind of in danger in order to do that, and you have to do it pretty regularly. Sometimes you'll have them doing a few of these each shift every day, and so you may have as many as you know five, six surveys a day. So each of those takes a few hours. With the autonomous robot that we've developed, then you can actually go in, stop at the safe zone, just send it in. It'll automatically figure out what it has to map, create the 3D map, come back, and you're done in you know five ten minutes, and so it's a it's kind of a game changer in that sense. It's safer. It's much more efficient. So it's you know an opportunity to greatly increase the efficiency of the operations. And these operations, if they lose you know a half day of time, that's probably five or ten million dollars in revenue. Right. And so it's a huge impact on operations. And it's an opportunity also to create a more accurate underground map where we have something like a thousand percent more data created and more accuracy in the actual ground map. Nice. They've been doing it the same way ever since for who knows how long. Well, the mining industry is interesting because it's been adopting technology along the way, but it's still pretty far behind what you would see in something that's like a purely digital kind of business where you can iterate and change things very, very rapidly, like multiple times a day. That's not the way it works for businesses that are very physically oriented because there's a lot more risk involved. There's a lot more sort of best practice involved. If things go wrong, you lose many millions of dollars instead of 
losing like a couple thousand clicks on you know a, a social site or something. So they have adopted some higher technologies, but nothing like this. And they have been doing surveys very similarly up until the point where they got sort of radar and lidar. But even those are fixed systems, and so it still requires a person taking that sensor into an area. Whereas now you can send a separate vehicle in to do the whole thing. And I know that lidar technology <clears throat> increased. A lot recently, especially with the mm -hmm. automated driving. For sure, yeah. And also, you know, talking about drones, everything's mm -hmm. coming into play where yep. this wasn't possible, what, 10 years ago? For sure, yeah. I mean, you could do the, the sort of the rudiments of it five, 10 years ago. Right. But of course, we're benefited from the, the parallel development paths of all of the, the components and the sensors and the drones themselves, because we don't manufacture the drones. We're a, we're a software company that builds right. the autonomy stack and then sort of integrates it together. So, of course, there's a lot that we depend on in terms of what are the, the components that kind of go into the system. So it is really fascinating where it's a, a whole new market enabled by all of these parallel development paths. And are you guys focused uh, purely on the U.S. or somewhere else? No, our first deployments are actually <laughs> in Eastern Europe. It's really wherever the like for the mining industry, for instance, it's really about wherever their best fit mines are. So we focus on a specific type of mine, a specific type of geometry that they end up using a lot. So other things I didn't know beforehand, uh, you have soft rock and hard rock mines. Soft rock mines are often open pit or surface excavation, whereas hard rock mines are often uh, tunneled. And so we specifically do the tunneled ones because if you're an open pit mine, you have GPS and you probably have foreknowledge of what all the, uh, the maps are. So you don't really need the system. Instead, when you think about the hard rock mines, that's where you tunnel, that's where you blast, that's where you have these what we call stopes, and that's where the system is, is really a great fit because nothing else can do it. I see. Okay. And also you mentioned construction. Mm -hmm. How do you guys... Uh, pursue construction. So the idea with construction is that there's a huge amount of wastage in the in the construction industry just because it's very difficult to know the the complete status of construction as you're going through building a project. Now there are systems that do external surveys, drones that just fly around. Usually they have an operator, but it takes you know full video or it takes pictures, panoramics. Oh, when did they start doing that? A few years ago, I think it's been around for a bit, but it was cost prohibitive because you would have basically either people on the ground taking pictures or you would have like a helicopter. Mm -hmm. And I think once drones became sort of commercially viable for it and you had HD photograph and video, then that became something that was a little bit more accessible. But when you have those systems, those are only, you know, the external of a building is maybe, I call it 10% of the total sort of structural things that you're trying to build. And most of the wastage comes internally where they, like a system, a subsystem hasn't been installed in the correct order or it got installed too early or on the incorrect side or in the wrong room or whatever. And so those kind of things end up being a lot of rework for those contractors or for the projects. And so if you can identify that a little bit earlier where maybe you have the, you know, the HVAC system installed too early and then you need to tear it out in order yeah. to put in a bunch of wiring or something like that. Right. You know, that's just rework and that just adds to construction costs. Each individual thing might not be, you know, multiple percentage points of a project, but over time it becomes pretty significant. And so it's a way of keeping better track of how progress is going and being able to, you know, validate accountability 
find out where you need to redirect uh, teams kind of not quite real time because you don't have these things flying 24-7, but you know, you might do a survey every night or once a week or something like that on the weekends. And in that context, then you get to have a better handle on what you need to do with your with your teams as a builder, as a construction manager. How are you doing that in the inside of a building? So we just create a full 3D map of the entire inside of a building or especially an area where you want to map in uh, in high detail because the the accuracy of these systems is pretty amazing and this is also done by uh, drones mm-hmm. as well with yeah. the light uh, light systems yep okay so the key development <laughs> step for us there mm-hmm. is the systems work perfectly well to do all of that but we're restricted a little bit in the the time cycle that we can operate in because the drones that we use the most are a pretty tight fit through a standard doorway. And so the next step there is basically to focus on early stage construction before you have all of the sort of wall structures in place. Mm -hmm. And then as we prove that model out, then you start bringing in smaller drones that have the same, what we call payload, the same autonomy system on top, but they can fit through doors easier. My gosh. Okay. (laughs) And you guys are based in Philadelphia. Yep. Where in Philly? Right on uh, Washington Avenue, 22nd Washington, what we would like to call Robotics Row, because there's a whole bunch of robotics companies between 20th and the Penovation Center over in Grays Ferry, because they have a huge robotics hub there. And then right across the street from us are a bunch of NextFab companies yeah, uh, that are was, part of the NextFab accelerator. I was there like two weeks ago. There you go. Uh, yeah. Garden guys. Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then Aegean Robotics that are doing the burrow and all that stuff. So there's a lot of really cool stuff happening there, and it's a really cool, really cool spot to be to be a part of. Yeah, and they got the whole construction there too. Mm-hmm. Like. Uh, you ever talk to Ori about his project? <laughs> yeah, every now and then. It's uh, well, we I don't know him specifically, but we talked to the, the our landlords are big property owners in the area, right. and so so they are. It's a it's an interesting conversation because of course they'd like to charge us more rent, but they're pretty good guys, and so they've helped us develop the space from what what it was, I think, a tile warehouse into a, uh, both a flight zone and a, and a tech startup workspace. It's pretty and you cool. guys uh, do the testing over there too? Yep. Well, not all the testing. We do all the preliminary testing. We do initial test flights, and we do some of our core acceptance criteria there. But it's not the same thing as flying in a mine. So yeah. we try and get all of our systems out to actual mine sites. And so it's really interesting to then see how it behaves in those different environments. Uh, what are, are some of the mine sites that you test this? We test in like central Pennsylvania or uh, sort of near Blacksburg okay. in Virginia. And then we have a few other sites that we're sort of evaluating. It'd be nice to have something closer to the uh, <laughs> closer to the office. You can't just take it to the subway. Just <laughs> well, we have flown in the subway. Oh. And we did a project with SEPTA actually that's on the, on the website you can take a look at. And it was creating a, a 3D map of one of the trolley tunnels, I think maybe between 30th Street and... 36th Street. I'm not quite, I can't quite remember. But that's another big opportunity, actually, of the software and of the, the technology in general is that it's very difficult to have good maps of transit tunnels specifically, but also then getting into infrastructure of other types where you have larger storm drains and sewers and uh, you know water mains and that sort of thing. There's a lot of opportunity to create much more accurate utility maps here where otherwise that would take what, what you would, in the mining world, you'd call it a total station, which is like a like surveying equipment. And it needs to be there for a while to create this really accurate map. And you don't really have, like time is a commodity that is in short supply for like a transit station where you don't want to shut down, you know, big sections of the, of the subway just so you can get a map. And in this case, you don't need to. Like you can shut it down for 25 minutes 
and you can do a full map station to station, you know, one segment. And then you let a train go by, then you shut it down again and you sort of do that. And so you're able to create in a much more efficient way these sort of crazy digital maps that allow for much more efficient management of the, the maintenance and of upgrade planning and all that kind of stuff. Because a lot of, you know, a city like Philadelphia, the infrastructure is pretty old. And even the newest infrastructure is, a lot of it is like 20, 30, 40 years old. And the oldest is, you know, over 100, maybe 150 years old. And so it's hard to have a really good map of that. A lot of the stuff is still paper drawings of whatever the original you know, right. builders did. And hopefully they recorded it, right. you know, but you don't really know. And so when you're flying these drones to mm-hmm. uh, get the 3D images, mm-hmm. how far can they go without, mm-hmm. you know, being shut down or just going down? So, I mean, it's all a question of the amount of battery power mm-hmm. that you're, you've got on board and how heavy the payload is. And then that kind of gives you your flight time. So the average time that we recommend is something like 20 minutes or so, 15 or 20 minutes. We take a commercial DJI drone and put on our payloads and integrate it. And we have some custom uh, processing and boards and, and some sensors and stuff. But it's not a huge long flight time. So over time, we're considering looking at things like fuel cell power which is a little bit of, of a, a denser energy footprint. So for the same weight, you have a little bit more power you can extract out of it. And of course, as you burn the fuel, the, the system gets a little bit lighter. So you actually extend right. as you go uh, go further down. We can also just put more batteries on or you can hot swap batteries. There's a lot of discussion about how would we do sort of speed charging or a system that you can just swap batteries out really quickly. The systems as they are now, it's pretty easy. You land it and just sort of pop the batteries, put new ones in. So it allows you fairly continuous flying then, but just requires to have a lot of batteries. So it's an interesting problem, but we actually find that most of the cases were not as restricted by flight time as we are by decision-making. Like, what do they actually want to do? You get a whole bunch of information about a section, you fly it, and then you come back and they're like... Well, this is a lot of data. What do we do? Let's think about it. Let me think about where we go next. And during that time, you've already swapped out the batteries. And so, especially true in the mining world, over time, we'll have to think about what the right solutions are for like more continuous operation, maybe in like a subway system where you want just like a really big map done as soon as possible. That might be a different way. All right. right. So how did you end up here? How did you end up at... uh... It's a very circuitous, <laughs> circuitous path. And I like to say that I have my career represents the ADHD of career planning. I uh, I went to Penn undergrad. I actually I applied because my uh, my dad bet me forty dollars I couldn't get in. Oh. And then of course I got in, Smart and man. and he <laughs> and then he was like, ah, I got to pay for this. <laughs> and so uh, anyway, I did ROTC to to pay for quite a bit of it. But even then, I didn't didn't quite have coverage to do the whole thing. So I started my first two companies when I was in undergrad to kind of cover the rest of expenses and stuff. And that was really fascinating. It was you know necessity being the mother of invention. I didn't set out to be a startup guy or an entrepreneur or anything, but I just I didn't have the cash in hand that I needed, and so started a business. So I did those two. Uh, that was great. They were a mix of hardware, software, and sort of web companies. Nothing crazy large or super, super successful, but it taught me a lot about how to kind of build a small business out of this stuff, profitable from day one. And when I graduated, I sort of turned those over to some other folks to, to run for a bit and then went into the Navy. And I was a naval officer for six years and did a few combat tours. I joined right before 9-11. So, of course, oh. then a few months in, we were right in the mix. 
so I spent a lot of time in the in the Gulf area, and you know, I led uh, what what are called VBSS teams, which are visit board search and seizure. So they're you're on like what we call a five meter rib, which is a rigid hull inflatable boat. So it's like a small speedboat with okay. rubber sponsons around the edge, and you drop those off of one of the larger ships, and you sort of pop over to whatever your target ship is and jump on board and try and figure out if they're smuggling weapons or illegal oil or whatever. And so I did that and I led the communications teams for the battle group when I was over there as well. Went to nuclear power school, got the sort of Navy equivalent of a master's of nuclear engineering, which is very operationally focused. It's a little bit, it's enough theory to make sure that you really understand everything, but you're not going off and like designing reactors or anything. Okay. And, and so, so then you, I ran the reactor mechanical group on an aircraft carrier for two years, and that was sort of the end of my naval career. After that, I came out. I settled back in Philadelphia, worked for Lockheed Martin for a bit. That was in South Jersey in, uh, in Moorestown. And I liked that from the perspective it was a really easy landing spot because when I was coming out of the Navy, I didn't really know a whole lot about like careers <laughs> or what it was that people did, right. you know as a career. And so, you know, when people were asking me coming out, I was talk to recruiters and stuff and they'd be like, so what, what kind of role are you looking for? And I was like, I really have no idea. I know that there are things called bankers and lawyers and I don't know what else is there. Right. <laughs> and so it was very, I mean, I was sort of naive in a sense. I mean, you have a specialized knowledge. I mean, yeah, I mean, but coming out of the Navy, a lot of people ha like tackle all kinds of stuff because, you know, in a way you put your life on hold for a while because you're developing a lot of very specialized knowledge, okay. but you're developing across a wide variety of areas. So and most people that come out of the Navy are going to be fine jumping into a new category or a new role and do something like that because they're so used to just learning new, crazy, odd things like all the time. So I'll give you a for instance. So we had a bunch of specializations that we had to had to learn about as, uh, as naval officers. So you have like your core area that might be communications. So you go to special school for that to learn about it. Then you have like watch standing. So that's learning how to drive the ship, learning how to fight the ship. Like how do you control sure. weapon systems and all that jazz? You learn tactics and strategy and that stuff. You learn about the logistics of maintaining the ship, the battle group, the you know the whole region, whatever. You have aircraft on board. You have small boats. You have all this other stuff. Then you have uh, damage control. So you learn to be a firefighter. <laughs> you learn about like, you know, what are the classes of fires? How do you fight them in different types of environments? Because it differs whether you're on deck of the ship or in a closed environment, above the water or below the water. It's like a ton of stuff that is not super relevant for my day-to-day -day life now. But it's interesting because you have this sort of bizarre background. And so coming out of that, you have a lot of this random knowledge. That's Swiss Army knowledge. Exactly. And m almost none of it is super directly applicable right. to like a specific role. Right. But if you take a step back and learn about the fact that you've developed a framework to learn these things and apply them to real-world scenarios, that is a super, super relevant skill because especially now where the technology development for industries is moving so fast, you have to learn to adapt to new systems, new mechanisms, new way of doing business a lot. And so the folks who get really focused on a specific methodology are going to get left behind no matter what. Right. And so this is a really, I mean, not to get too far afield, but that's a big problem with like how you're thinking about retraining workforces and when you think about the idea of universal basic income or how do you keep people relevant when 
automation and robotics and AI and machine learning and all that stuff is sort of taking bits and pieces of jobs. And people can stay ahead of that and still have relevant roles, but they've got to learn. They've got to keep abreast of the, the new technologies that come through. And so it's an interesting way of training people from pretty young because a lot of folks that go into the military are 17, 18, 19 years old. And so they get used to this framework of like learning new things rapidly a lot, having to make quick decisions in sort of time-sensitive environments. And that kind of skill set is actually surprisingly relevant for the entrepreneurial world. And also the execution that you guys mm-hmm. talk about. Like, yeah. I mean, execution is pretty much everything. <laughs> yeah, it's the, it's the whole game. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so I, I was, yeah. which is all to say that I came to Lockheed and it was a really interesting landing spot. And I did some like military business development for a while. I worked on what the contractors call capture programs, which is, you know, the government says we're going to build this thing. We just need to decide which of the six contractors are going to build it and how we split it up. And so that was interesting. And it was sort of, it was cool to see how the whole system worked, but it, it wasn't super interesting to me to actually do it for a long time. So I helped build a, an entrepreneurial competition internal to the company. And we got like 10,000 submissions from across the corporation and then turned that into a set of down selects where we coached people through building simple business cases, test cases, how to validate or invalidate markets and all this kind of stuff. And so we ended up with about 35 ideas. And as a result of that, they were so interesting that we actually got funding internally to build a new line of business. And that line of business we built as quote-unquote new ventures group over the next uh, five years. How did you narrow down the 10,000 to 35? We did some pretty broad sweeps uh, right off the top. Uh, Anything that just seemed that we either just couldn't understand (laughs) or didn't seem relevant or wasn't a business that we thought had the potential to be a billion-dollar line of business, you know, all that stuff got swept out because those are criteria for Lockheed because this was an internal Lockheed project. So even something that would be a wildly successful $100 million business but then caps out at that, not super interesting, doesn't move the needle for them. And so they were looking for transformational technologies or approaches that would make the new billion-dollar business. And so there was an interesting set of criteria, and it was good because you got to focus more on that early stage. And so... Did all the 10,000 know the criteria? Like, they knew that they had to create a... I mean, in theory, I have no idea if they actually... uh, But these are like scientists with patents and stuff. Well, this is anyone... This is all internal to Lockheed. Yeah, so a lot of them were engineers, probably the majority. But then a lot of folks that just sort of had a, a pet project or, you know, they just had an obsession with like a particular technology or an approach or whatever. And so it was really interesting. Okay. So we did that for a while. We focused a lot on renewable energy. So I did a lot of work with solar power, synthetic fuels, biomass, marine hydrokinetics, OTEC, you know, all kinds of random stuff. And it was really interesting. Uh, In parallel, I built a small business doing solar power as well. So that was also fascinating to operate at the very top and the very bottom of the market in terms of size. Because my personal solar business was residential and small-scale commercial. Then on the Lockheed side, of course, we're massive utility scale. And so billion-dollar projects versus, you know, $20,000 $20,000 projects. Yeah, yeah. And so it was really interesting talking to the same suppliers sometimes about like, hey, can I get a quote for, <laughs> you know, a $500 million project? And then, right. oh, by the way, how about 30 panels for, you know, a veterinarian's <laughs> office over what across they, the street? How did they react to this? Like, they thought it was hilarious. They yeah. thought I was absolutely nuts. <laughs> like, we just don't understand what you're doing, which is the same reaction I got internal to Lockheed when I went and was like, hey, I'm going to do this small business. I know I probably got to get some sort of legal thing so that I'm not in conflict. Mm-hmm. And they're like, 
yeah, I, I guess. What? <laughs> Why? And I was like, I don't know. I'm just, I want to test it out. And so they gave me, I think there was a lot of, a lot of sort of, you know, sidelong glances with like, what is this guy doing? <laughs> but it was really interesting and it was an awesome experience. I learned a ton from the folks that I worked with. Right. You know, Lockheed and government contractors in general get a bad rap sometimes because they're not optimized for the same things that commercial corporations are. Mm-hmm. They're really optimized for retaining a set of capabilities that are sort of nationally strategic. And profit is not the number one. Efficiency is not number one. None of that stuff is really what the sort of the optimization for the companies are. The whole idea is to keep them in business so that when you really need a set of capabilities, you can just pull them from all the projects and go, okay, this, go tackle this, get this done. And a great example of that is when I was working there, actually, there was a, I forget, a communications satellite or something that was falling out of orbit and they were worried it was going to fall and hit a population center. And within the satellite, there was um, some volatile chemicals, I think hydrazine, which is like not not great for people, probably would have killed a bunch of folks. And so they pulled just a whole bunch of the really smart folks from across the company and they put them, they sequestered them in like a building off campus and were like, okay, what are our options? What can we do? And within like two weeks, they go, actually, we have a system that we think can send a missile up and shoot it and just sort of blow it up so that the rest of it burns up on entry. And so it's not intact falling on a population center. Right. And they're like, okay, great. How long do you need to do this? And they're like, I don't know, three or four weeks. So they then like modify the system, do this whole thing. And it was sort of lucky because there was already some missile defense capability that was being built across a bunch of the contractors. Okay. But in this case, they took like a cruiser, modified one of the missiles, and then shot it up as a kinetic warhead and just... You know, blew the thing up and then no one died. So it was like, it was like this, a movie. Yeah, it was like a crazy, you know, four to six week turnaround. And no one knew. Not yeah. Now. But this is the, I mean, it wasn't classic. I think people knew about it, okay. but it, it wasn't like the, the what happened behind the scenes there probably wasn't really. Right. Well it was about. just like a mention in the news. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Like, oh, yeah, no problem. Yeah, missile test or something. But this is a, a lesson learned by the U.S. government in like World mm-hmm. War II where it got caught a little bit flat footed. And so it was like, all right, how do we maintain the capability to respond to things that we don't expect. Mm. And so that's why you always have more than one major Navy base on each port. So you maintain two separate bases at least that are not geographically near each other just in case one gets you know, bombed out or whatever. Yeah. And so it's an interesting way to get inside the head of how the U.S. thinks about strategic decisions. Right. And so you to apply that, I actually I thought a lot about how that applied then to commercial business because the same mechanisms that you use to think about national strategy can be applied when you're thinking about a new startup because it's a lot of the same things. You're trying to think about like a land grab in the early days right. because there's new customers. A lot of times they don't know anything about the market. And so you get an opportunity to go and sort of grab land like the like the U.S. did, you know, the the colonists pre-U.S. did before a lot of this this country was settled. And so there's a lot of really interesting lessons to learn. There's a lot of of literature that I went through as a result of uh, the military training that you can apply, actually, to broader strategy in the the tech world. Which literature? So a great example is On Sea Power and History, which is uh, by Alfred Thayer Mahan. It's kind of required reading for all naval officers. But it's guided our maritime and economic policies for 150 years. And the basic idea is just that a deep water capable country basically controls their destiny by controlling the sea lanes, which in turn controls commerce. 
And so this was the culmination of this was when the U.S. just post World War II signed the Bretton Woods Accords with you know, most of Europe and a lot of the the rest of the world. And what that basically meant was, look, we promised to keep sea lanes open and allow free trade and transit. In return, you guys shouldn't build militaries. Focus instead on building economies. And as a result of that, that kind of led to a lot of the the free trade. That's happened now, and mm-hmm. you know who knows whether that really lasts. It seems like the U.S. might be yeah. <laughs> pulling out of that a little bit, but that's a whole different discussion. So, but that's a great example of of a book that talks about how do you drive economic growth in this sense, and a lot of it's about free trade, free communication, free movement of goods and information, right. and that guided a lot of the, the thought process around the internet development as well. And just like. The more we can connect the information to other nodes that can use the information, right. it should be a self-reinforcing system that then creates more innovation. And so, you know, that application taking a little bit of a grain of salt because you then are not doing, you know, military movements for a startup. It's a very different beast. But uh, but when you think about it in terms of how do you provide your teams with the best access to decision making, information, materials, what do they need? Which, as a leader, that's what my primary job is. I'm not going in there and trying to figure out everything for everybody. If we did that, then my you know companies are screwed. Right. The best I can do is to set a bit of a vision, hire really great people, and just try and get stuff out of their way. So if I can get some really smart people in a room and say, look, this is our general objective. Here's the criteria that I know about, and here's a bunch of assumptions that I need you to either uh, validate or invalidate. And let's go, (laughs) you know? And so uh, I think about it in a a very similar way of like giving them a little bit of operational bounds, but then a general objective and just try and let them them figure it out because they'll do better than me almost nine out of 10 times. And what are you looking for when you're hiring with these guys? There's very few hard and fast rules that I have. Okay. One that is surprisingly not tested a lot is just trustworthiness. If someone lies to me, even if it's a small lie, they're gone because that means that's the seed of I can't trust them. Right. If they'll lie about something small, I don't know where that line is going to be. It's like a boy and frog. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. So that's like I, I try and get a sense for how much I can trust them right in the interviews. And, you know, it's not perfect as with anything in an interview process, but it's also something that's an ongoing thing that I try and make clear as well. Beyond that, a lot of it is just the capacity to learn and question themselves and intellectual curiosity. It's sort of all tied together for me. So I don't want someone who's just going to sort of sit there until I tell them to do something. I want them to be someone who's not just a self-starter because they're ambitious, but a self-starter because they're curious. They're driven to just understand and learn. Because especially in the sort of product development, customer success, engineering world that all revolves around solving problems for people, you need to understand the people. You need to understand the problem, the people, why they're having it, what else do they do that influences how they would utilize the solution. And so I want people who, through the nature of their personality, want to understand both the problem, the people, and what's going on around them. How do you find that? You know, it's... well. It's not that hard, actually, I don't think. I think the key is to see how people listen and how they interact. If they, it becomes pretty clear when people are just driving towards a a predefined goal that they either think you want them to do or, you know, they're focused on because they want to do it. And if they, along that path, aren't going to be dissuaded, that's great for maybe a salesperson that has a really, really clear goal set. But 
most of the time that's bad. And especially for a product manager, that's bad. Or an engineering lead, that's bad. Customer success, very bad. And so the key is really seeing how they listen, how they adapt. Can they identify? Can they create a sense of empathy in both directions? And that's not trivial, but it's also not that hard to find if you're paying attention. It requires people who are able to listen and who themselves <laughs> have empathy, mm. but it's not all that hard. And you know, I make plenty of mistakes in my hiring as well. I'm nowhere near perfect, but over time, you get a better and better sense for how to identify it. So, if you talk to somebody for let's say thirty minutes, would mm -hmm. you be able to figure that out? Or I'll have more? a I'll have a sense of it. You know, like I said, I, there I make plenty of mistakes on this. Okay, and probably the biggest thing is once you hire someone, do they change? Like it may be that they interview really well and they, for whatever reason, either they've talked to someone else who works for me or they've met me before and they just get a sense that I want that out of people. Or maybe they listen to this podcast and they're like, oh, well, I just got to, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to be the, the friendly listener guy. Yeah, yeah. And so the hiring process is like, you know, you screen out the most obvious people that won't fit. Yeah. But then the reality is the first month or two, you're going to learn a lot from how they react under stress and under so question you, and that you stuff. put them on the, um, like a testing period of like three months? Not explicitly, but yeah. within three months. I try and have set at a 90-day review point where I sit down with someone and go, is this working? Is this what you expected? Is this what I expected? Are you, you know, what are the things that we either explicitly need to work on and fix mm -hmm. or is this already too far gone? Is that something that you notice that most people don't do? In like in other companies? Yeah. Well, I... I honestly haven't really worked for a company where I've been an employee in that sense mm -hmm. for a long time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I honestly don't know. I, I don't think it's super common. I get the sense that it's, I mean, it is very difficult to keep up with that kind of thing because it seems like there's so much on your plate every day to just right. get done, right? Yeah. So it's hard to find time to do those things, but yeah. but we really try. <laughs> And again, I'm not perfect in this sense either. I'm, But trying to spend time specifically to talk about how people are feeling about the job. Is it what they thought it was? What can we be doing to, you know, help them be better, feel better, you know, perform better? And those conversations often will lead to a much clearer sense for, oh, this person's going to leave the company. Oh. Maybe because I have discovered that despite my best efforts, we hired someone that's broadly incompetent. Okay. Or maybe they just are really not happy and they're trying to force fit it you know, square peg, round hole, whatever. Right, right. And then in that case, that gives me an opportunity to talk to him honestly about it and say, look, it seems like you're really not enjoying this. Is there something I can do to help? Can, you know, is there a gap that we can close here? Or should I help you find another job? Because I will. I don't want people to be out on the street you right. know, as a result of this. Most people are a good fit somewhere. Right. Even someone that I think is wildly incompetent at what I asked them to do right. probably is very competent at something. And I'd rather help them find that so that we all leave on good terms or as best as possible. And this, the experience is positive enough that they'll recommend us to someone else that they know that might be a good fit. Right. Because to me, that's the core of really good recruiting is not just sort of going out to a career fair and going, hey, we're awesome. We're really fun people. Have a beer. And instead, I want everyone that comes into interview to have met someone that has a positive experience with us somehow. Okay. Either from a conference or from a you know a personal interaction from the coffee chats. You know you do these things as well, like coffee chats all the time. Yeah. Like I want to get out and meet the people that know the people that are going to be really good hires. 
And this is kind of a philosophy that I've developed over time because it didn't really come naturally. I wasn't really sure how to recruit because I didn't really understand it. But over time, this is a methodology that has really worked, especially in my last startup. And it's the process has begun now in Exxon, but I've only been there for a few months. So now the time is ripe to, to do it again. What percentage would you say you delegate your time to in a day? Like operation mm-hmm. in terms of hiring and... Yeah, and just management. Like, what percentage uh, do you put? It really depends. I, you know, on an average, over a course of a week, let's say, because yeah. a given day is going to be wildly variable. Over a given week, I probably try and put thirty percent of my time into direct people management and recruiting, and then probably another twenty percent into like more strategic projects that are things I need to work on sort of solo. And most of the rest is just trying to help the organization run better. And part of that is the nature of my role. Like I'm the chief operating officer. So, you know, my clear mandate is operating better. (laughs) So beyond that, though, it's pretty variable. And so I spend a lot of my time trying to help people decide when and where process is right and which process to use or when process is not the right answer and to let it be a more free form Helping people think about hiring, about you know being managers. I'm a. I do a lot of sort of uh, management coaching and leadership coaching and training. So yeah, uh, tell us a little bit more about that. Like, I sure. Know, I know you do a lot of stuff in Philadelphia. Yeah. So I coach and mentor for a bunch of the accelerators nearby. I work with the Comcast, Lyft Labs, sort of tech stars uh, group. And I work with uh, Philly startup leaders, and I work with Next Fab's Rapid Accelerator. And, and over, over the years, I've done a lot of mentoring for uh, veterans that are coming out of the military, trying to get into tech or start companies themselves, work with Bunker Labs here in the city as well. And so all of those groups are ones that I do sort of pro bono. Part of it is sort of self-interested in the sense that I want the ecosystem to be better so that more talent comes here so that I can hire them. Mm. But the other part is I just, I like doing it. I want to, I want to see if we can get the people that that have the capability to do well in those environments. I want to see that they have the opportunity to give a run at it. And so it's great to see a lot of the the new groups that are, are pulling together opportunities for especially the more disadvantaged groups that don't really have the same access. Right. Like, I mean, there was some absurd statistic that like 60% of venture capital was raised by like Harvard, Stanford, or MIT, or uh, Penn grads. Right. And it's like, <laughs> and so it's just so focused in that one group. So try, I don't know what the right answer is to try and like get other people the same capacity to take the risk and to you know develop a network and raise capital and all that stuff. There's a ton of structural problems that you know you take one step at a time. You try and solve them as you can. So for me, the best I can do right now is to try and get out to these accelerators early stage is better to try and give them a framework for what's worked for me and right. what, you know, help them learn from the many, many mistakes that I've made. And so maybe cut their learning curve a little bit. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like the reason why we were doing this podcast yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, the infrastructure in Philadelphia mm-hmm. is starting to show, mm-hmm. um, especially in the real estate side with the mm-hmm. city here, yeah. and like all the buildings that, you know, Amazon almost came here mm-hmm. and they would probably be replacing that with a lot, a lot of different startups. But mm-hmm. the infrastructure, it seems like in Philadelphia, it's just, getting ready mm-hmm. it's yeah and then obviously mentorship mm-hmm. is huge yeah and also uh, i did have one other question in terms of the staff 
when they come to you, how do they come to you? Are you using recruiters or is it just word of mouth? I depend on all avenues. Okay. We use recruiters. We use internal recruiters that go out proactively. We go to hiring conferences. We do. We haven't really done it yet, but we're going to begin doing a lot of social content. We're going to do some community engagement. We're going to try and like hold some seminars and that sort of thing, get out on the speaking circuit a little bit. I, my experience is that there's no real silver bullet. It takes a lot of time and effort to do it well, but that it pays for itself over time because you get really good people and they have a better sense for what the company is in the first place. They're not surprised when they come. Okay. That also means that you have to live up to the things that you tout when you're out there recruiting, but, but that's also good. It's a good way to hold myself accountable as well. Okay. And how did you know the CEO of this company? So we met through a bunch of introductions. So... I've been involved with uh, with Penn's entrepreneurship and with Wharton's entrepreneurship programs, you know, sort of ongoing since because uh, I started the the last company while we were in business school, and so we were we we're sort of pretty tightly connected there. And I've just kept in touch with a lot of those folks. And so uh, when I moved back to Philly from New York, I started doing a bit more consulting and coaching work because we had sold the last company and wasn't really sure it was going through my sort of existential <laughs> post-sale crisis of who am I, what do I do, how do I define myself without a company? And so as a result, I just met a ton of people. I went to a lot of venture capitalists and said, hey, I just want to meet interesting people doing interesting things. Who do you know? And so I would always get really interesting introductions from people. And that just sort of continued. Everyone would, everyone knows like one or two folks that okay. are doing interesting work. Right. And most of them aren't going to be a good fit for me or not one. Like at the time I was doing the consulting work. So most of those are not an opportunity for me to consult with. But I love getting a sense for what's going on. Mm -hmm. And it gave me a lot of positive feeling about the, the startup ecosystem in the Philly area because there was a lot more going on than I, I thought. And it was super interesting meeting all of these entrepreneurs and new companies and just cool things going on. Yeah. So anyway, I, it was an introduction through some of the folks over Red and Blue Ventures, which are a early stage VC based on investing in the pen ecosystem. And Brett and Michael over there were, uh, I guess at the time they were considering an investment index and they have since invested. But they said, hey, you know, this might be a good opportunity to, to talk to them. Seems like an interesting area with some mix of skill sets that you might be able to contribute. So it was as simple as that. So we had had lunch with uh, with Nader, who's the CEO over there. And then we did, we kicked off a bit of a consulting project, sort of kicked the wheels on both sides. And then getting close to the Series A, then we talked about me coming on board. Oh, I see. And Nader, how did he come up with this technology? So the technology, the core technology originally came out of the GRASP laboratory, which is Penn's robotics lab. So that was... I think the technology itself was kind of pioneered by some research work from Vijay Kumar, who's the, the dean over there. And so he's technically the, the co-founder along with Nader. Our first set of hires were former students of either Vijay himself or some folks that he knew. So he, he pulled a lot of really good people into the, into the company pretty early. And the three years since then, there's been a ton of development work done. So most of the intellectual property now is newly developed work around the autonomy stack and what's called SLAM and perception. It's like different categories of the, the autonomy stack. And, and so that team is led by uh, Jason Durenick, who's a PhD roboticist and has been kind of leading our teams. So it's a whole bunch of really interesting work that's gone into it. And then Nader's leading from kind of the business 
business side of it. And so through his vision, we've been able to identify you know, the, the logistics, uh, which is like warehousing, uh, mining, and construction areas as all possible categories to tackle. And as it turned out, we were able to get some, uh, some traction from the mining one first. So that's when we tackled. Okay. And are you guys raising money right now? Or? Uh, so we just raised a, a pretty serious uh, Series A. I think it was 16, 16 million, a little over 16 million. Okay. So we're probably not out raising right now, but what we will certainly be considering because we're hiring a ton, trying to hire another 10 people before end of year. And oh. so it's uh, so we're off to the races for sure. Okay. And how many staff are currently in place? Counting interns mm-hmm. and co-ops, I think we're at 19 or 20. Okay. It's a little bit variable because we have a lot of co-ops and interns that sort of pop through because it's such an interesting technology. So you guys are going to grow by 50%? That's the plan. (laughs) Okay, okay, nice. Yeah. Great. Do you have any current insights in your industry? I know we talked a lot about it, but... Um, Current insights. Uh, Yeah, it's hard. (laughs) Autonomy is a really complex, a very complex sort of set of problems and the added complexity from a commercial standpoint is that autonomy is not a final solution. It's a, an enabling technology. So, you know, you go to a customer and you say, Hey, I've got this great autonomous drone and they go, great. I don't, what does that do for me? I don't care. (laughs) And so instead you need to think about what does this technology do for the customer that enables them to do something else better or what does it do that enables them to do something they couldn't do before? So in the mining world, then it's, you know, we talked about the stopes and the, the mapping faster, more efficient, safer. But just telling them that we have autonomy wouldn't have gotten us there. Because right. they're like, I don't know what that does for me. So it's very complicated to think about like this sort of two-stage process of we need to keep developing the core autonomy. We need to be thinking about pushing the, the envelope and the bleeding edge of what does autonomy mean? How do we make this even more confident and irreplaceable <laughs> in that sense. But then what are the things that we put on top of that to actually deliver value to the end customer? Because they don't care about the autonomy necessarily. So once you have the 3D map, for instance, how does the mining customer consume it? Do they like take it on a thumb drive? Do they integrate it through a set of APIs? Do they plug it into another system? Do they want to visualize it right away? Or do they not care? Do they just want to send it to you know, the geologist back at the mine management site where they then integrate it into their sort of uh, worldview management software. Like all of these things were questions we had to answer. And, you know, now we have a roadmap as a result of that. But it changes over time. And so every market you go into, you then have a separate customer facing roadmap that builds on top of your enabling technology. So how do you usually approach the clients? Like, is it word of mouth or is it just like, hey, what we're doing? In this case, we've begun to build a lot of word of mouth power in the mining industry. We've got an early customer in uh, Dundee Precious Metals, which is known in the mining industry for tackling high-tech methodologies to make very profitable mines. And so that's been a big boon for us. We, d- we delivered commercial systems to them month and a half ago, which was great. We did some really interesting demos out in uh, out west this past week. And so uh, the word's getting out there now. We go to a lot of conferences and stuff. The big question for us now is not so much meeting those companies, because most of them know us now. We just got to get out and demonstrate to them, which is staffing. Right. Can we build the robots fast enough? And can we make sure they don't crash? <laughs> oh, okay. And so... All of those things are ones we've worked on. You know, we're pretty confident now in the technology and the integration. 
and the ability to fly successfully in a lot of these environments. We're hiring a lot of the staff, the field engineers that can go out and do these demonstrations and sort of prep them and, and do sort of maintenance and that kind of work. And then the rest of it is just getting out there and proving to them and selling to them. So the sales cycle is not super fast, but it's, you know, to, de- to a demonstration, you can get in there and make it happen. I mean, from their point of view, it makes perfect sense in terms yeah. of the amount of capital that's just sitting there and the amount of people for sure waiting. Uh, what's your biggest pain point right now? Hiring. Hiring. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Always. I mean, there's the robotics world is is blowing up yeah. <laughs> because there's just so much going on. We are lucky in that a lot of really good programs are nearby. The two best robotics programs in the world are both in Pennsylvania, CMU and Penn. And so, you know, we compete with a lot of other companies to get that stuff. Mm-hmm especially out of Pittsburgh because Uber has a big self-driving thing there and CMU has a big program where they've attracted some companies to Pittsburgh itself. And, of course, the Bay Area draws a lot. But we've done pretty well. We've got a really good team within Exxon now, and that by itself is a draw for really smart folks that want to work with other smart folks. But it's still hard because a lot of people don't know about Philadelphia as a robotics hub, and uh, so we have to sort of educate them about it and... Most people, once they actually come to visit, they're like, oh, this is both an awesome city and yeah. relaxed and I can afford to live here and yeah, <laughs> everything sense. else. But it's, uh, you know, yeah. Philadelphia undersells itself quite a bit okay. um, as a reputation. Do you have any announcements you want to make? Yeah. I mean, we're hiring. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so anything across the board, we're looking for software engineers, product managers, UI, UX, anything robotics. Whole, the whole uh, whole stack. If you've done embedded systems, IoT, that's helpful as well. C plus plus is the the core the core systems that we work with. Okay. What's the one question that you keep getting asked? I mean, throughout most of my career, I always get asked like, "How the hell did you end up here?" Okay. Because it's, I mean, we went through my background. It's very odd, like, you know, <laughs> tech startups, then military, then defense, then energy, then business school, then, you know, marketing automation, then (laughs) autonomous robotics. So I always get that question, even sometimes from people who know me that are just still trying to wrap their head around it. Well, I mean, (laughs) you're also a jack dude, so (laughs) like it doesn't, yeah. It doesn't quite make sense. Yeah, exactly. Have you had any problems with any partners or staff? I mean, over my entire time in startups, of course, I mean, people are people, they're, they're, you know, if we were all robots, then it would be very simple. You just have sort of operating mechanics. No, people are complicated. And like, that's something that I think, especially first time founders don't count on or don't understand often mm-hmm. is how difficult it is to be a good people manager and a leader. And a lot of them also think that that's something that only happens when you're a big company. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think you got to start it from day one. And a lot of companies implode because they can't figure it out at a small scale how to do people management. And, you know, I think that's, I forget, there was some statistics that first round released at one point that, that talked about what are the most common failure modes for startups. And one by far one of the most common was, you know, co-founder conflict. And that's a people management issue. That's not setting expectations. It's not communicating. That's, you know, all of the basics of being a good manager or leader still apply to being a co-founder and maybe even more so because you're spending so much time with them that if you don't set the stage right right in the beginning, you know, you guys are screwed. (laughs) 
So like once you figure it out, you're just like, hey, you know, this isn't working, and then you guys just work it out. Or setting expectations better up front mm-hmm. means that people then are more able to kind of roll with the punches in a way. Mm-hmm. Like if you and I were to start a company and okay. we never talked about equity split, and I was assuming it would be 80% me, 20% you, and you thought it was going to be 50-50. Then when we finally get to that conversation sometime later, you're like, what the hell? I've been operating under this idea that we're equal partners or whatever. And that might be enough to split the company then at a later stage, maybe when you're about to raise capital, then it sinks the company. Whereas if we had just had that conversation right up front, maybe we negotiated a bit, maybe it's not 50-50, maybe it's not 80-20, maybe it's something in the middle. Maybe it's like, you know... 70 30 or something and at that point maybe it's not ideal for either one of us but then we go you know what i can live with this i think it's worth it to try and tackle this vision then you can live through the the craziness later on because you go well we talked about it i did agree to it even if i don't think it's quite fair that's on me for agreeing to it and so tackling those hard conversations as soon as possible is super critical because those conversations will never get easier Every day that you wait, they will get harder. I see. <laughs> and so what I'm saying is you can avoid the implosion sometimes <laughs> if you have those conversations soon enough. But also, if it's a conversation that will implode the company no matter what, then do that early so you can go find someone else to do it with right. that's going to work with you. And so I think that's a very under, a very little understood aspect of early stage founding, I think. Uh, can you share a horror story that you experienced while running a company? Man, how long do you have? <laughs> sure. I mean, we had, I mean, a lot of the normal stuff. We've had managers try and sleep with their subordinates. We had one of them try and do a performance review a Saturday night over dinner. Oh. Like, <laughs> okay. Is it the same I, guy? Yeah. <laughs> okay. You're like, how do you, how, in what world is that okay? Yeah. It was just absurd. So what happened? Like, how did we reported to reported it? We brought on HR and reported it. And, you know, eventually we got them sort of separated and made sure that the I mean, of course, it was a junior female, more senior male. And so the critical part was that we wanted to make sure that she was given the opportunity and the choice of how to develop her career either with us or outside of us in a way that didn't affect it negatively, which, you know, I, it was my first time managing that particular problem. So I, you know, I hope I did a good job, but I really don't really know. I still question myself, but we talk to her every now and then, and she seems to think that we've did an okay job. Okay. <laughs> so, and then he eventually got booted, but anyway, so it's, it, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of random stuff like that. We had someone that was lying about what they were working on. And as soon as we found that out, then we fired him. There was, uh, why did he do that? Why did he do that? Yeah. I don't know. Because okay. <laughs> he was capable of doing the work. I don't know. I'm, it's That was some, some other deeper issue probably. Probably needs some counseling. Okay. But then we also had some really interesting characters that were not necessarily negative things, but were just very colorful early days of other startups. So we had a, a guy that was a technology contractor that was a, he's sort of like a, a political separatist. He's sort of not quite an anarchist, not that negative. He, he was just sort of like, He's like, I don't really like government. I kind of wish people would just get along. I'm going to go up and live in the woods for a while, maybe build an old school bus and run hackathons as we drive across the country. And was like super into 
the barter system or cryptocurrencies and all, all this kind of interesting stuff. Is he in San Francisco now or no? Now he's wandering around the country. I okay. think he was in upstate New York for a while and then Portland and that makes perfect where, sense. where you might imagine. Yeah. yeah but he would come in sometimes and he would smoke a bunch of weed and play a wooden flute and like dance around. <laughs> and you know, It was pretty awesome. I, but he was great. He was also like, right. he's like a cybersecurity guy too. So okay. he would go, all right, I'm going to get really high and do some intrusion detection and try and break into all of our systems. And we'd be like, all right, good, do it. And then he would break in and be like, here's what happened. I think you should implement these things. You know, like, I can't look at you right now. You're wearing like a multicolored bandana and you're barefoot in our office. But, you know, you, where, where, sometimes where you find really good talent yeah. is not where you, exactly. where you think it will be. So. That's funny. That's funny. Do you have a favorite resource that you like to use for reference or learning? I, a lot. I... There's something that I uh, recommend to almost everyone that does product development, which is the Stanford Design School has this thing called Design School Bootcamp or D-School Bootcamp. Mm-hmm. And it's like 40-page PDF packet that is that talks a little bit about empathy research and product development. And it's kind of stupid, simple primer. And so I wouldn't treat it as like the the encyclopedia on it, but it is so good for reminding you of steps that you're likely to skip because you get lazy because we all get lazy Mm -hmm. and so i always send that out to people if they haven't heard about it or read it i use it myself every now and then just to kind of remind myself of things that i kind of know but have forgotten to do yeah beyond that if for people who are either founders or very early employees the bible is a hard thing about hard things Who's that word? It's, uh, oh, man, Ben Horowitz, oh, I think. Yeah. I can't quite remember. The VC guy? Yeah. Okay. But it's an early stage founder who, is a, who turned into a VC and is sort of a, an OG in, in that network. I think it was Horowitz. But anyway, so he writes about how he went through this. And, of course, it's through the lens of someone who's now successful. So right. it's a little bit of – got to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. But if you ignore a little bit of the self-aggrandizing aspects – it's really fascinating and it's very, very useful. It really hits on a lot of the key hard decisions and hard decision points that happen in startups. And so it's a really, really great book. I don't know. There's a ton of things written out there. I like some of the blogs as well. There's a couple of really good blogs. First Run Capital runs a really great knowledge center and blog. Thomas Tonguns, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, he has a, a VC blog that is really good, very insightful. He does sort of pretty data-driven, so he tries to talk about what they're seeing across their portfolio and some other stuff like that. I don't know, what else? Uh, y Combinator has a really great startup school packet that you can just download. Oh, yeah, it's um, all that. Yeah. yeah, and uh, I think that's a really good one. It's fairly comprehensive. They do a, they do a great job of providing a bunch of standard documents mm-hmm. that you should just start with, like... There's a, a standardized advisor agreement called a FAST agreement, which is what I always send over. When, when a company asks me to be an advisor, I send that over. And it's probably less advantageous for me because it standardizes equity split for an advisor between 0 and 1%, which is good. I shouldn't have that much of a company as a simple advisor. Right. So I think that's fair. And it prevents a lot of startups or founders who don't know any better from giving away Right. 5% equity to some guy that's not going to help them that much. Right. And so that stuff is awesome, standardizing that stuff, because a lot of first-time founders just don't know. Right. You know, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know that there's standardized 
you know, industry standard documents for convertible debt or, you know, for advisor agreements or whatever. Like, it shouldn't be that complicated. That stuff is so standard or should be so standard that it helps you to avoid the shysters that are going to try and come in and, right. you know, mess you up. So I want people to focus on, like, their core thing that they're building, on building that value. Everything else should be boilerplate, you know? Okay. That makes sense. What kind of growth are you expecting for your staff? Huge. I don't know. I mean, like I said, I'm going to try and hire 10 people by end of year. Beyond that, next year we'll probably hire another 10. And then a lot depends on whether we raise more capital or how well the mining industry growth is going and whether we enter another market or two. So I'm curious about this. Mm -hmm. Uh, So let's say you guys are profitable right, Mm -hmm. right after raising the money and you guys don't really need the Series B. Well, what happens then? Well, I mean, there's two options there. So if you want to be a profitable company, then that's you run a company a certain way to be profitable. If you're instead focused more on growth, then you don't run it that way and you run it to optimize for growth. And so the choice that we would have is, you know, let's say that we get close enough to profitability by end of year that we have that option. And then, you know, the senior team is going to need to sit down with the board and kind of go, all right, well, what do we want to do here? Do we think that the bigger opportunity is to delay profitability and invest a ton more in talent, in market growth, in market entry? The land grab. Yeah, the land grab and technology development underlying the land grab. If we think that the opportunity is much, much bigger, then we can take that. And that's a risk, of course. It means we have to go out and raise more capital. That'll depend on the macroeconomic climate, you know, is the, has the trade war then created the recession and is capital less available to us? Or, you know, maybe in some senses, capital will be waiting for us still. I mean, there's right now, there's still an excess of capital available and no one's really sure where to put it. So I don't know how long it lasts, but it's an open question. And by the same token, we could at that point go, you know, I think actually we want to maximize the lifetime of this capital that we have now, in which case we will shoot for profitability or close to it. We'll invest, but not overwhelmingly. We'll hire a little bit more conservatively. We'll focus on better serving our current customers, on creating larger lifetime value for those customers, and, you know, focus a little bit less on just get as many things, you know, into the tent and rather more on securing the tent, making sure that it's in good shape. I see. So that's that's just a discussion. Yeah. I mean, it's any company goes through that. Okay. Well, any company that has a chance of being profitable okay. <laughs> goes through that. So I hope every company will have a chance to go through that. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I guess I feel that. Who inspires you? Oh, man. I, there's a few people that I think really are interesting, and some of them are, are like old hat. Like, I think Elon Musk is an amazing entrepreneur. He's obviously a little bit of a character. He's got got some interesting stuff going on with his, I guess, with his personal life and how he kind of gets caught on Twitter and oh, yeah. podcasts and stuff. But but you can't argue with the fact that he has made such amazing progress with SpaceX. SpaceX primarily is the one that is so, such transformative work. To a lesser extent, Tesla and then Solar City and some of the stuff with like Neuralink and those other peripheral companies. I think he's a fascinating guy in that sense. I don't think he's someone that is like a a whole system role model. I don't know about all that. I admire 
Gates after he got out of Microsoft, mm-hmm. focusing so much time and effort on tackling real problems and trying to apply his both massive wealth, but also his time and intelligence to tackling real-world problems. I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, the Netflix special coming out. I heard about that, yeah. yeah. I haven't seen it yet, so I, maybe my mind will change after it we see it. starts September 20 or something. Yeah. So, yeah. so I think he's a really fascinating guy. I think, actually, Angela Merkel is oh. uh, someone that I, I admire quite a bit because she has played in the world stage as a massively influential chancellor for Germany, but doesn't really play by the same rules. Like, she at least creates the impression of being sort of above it all mm. and sort of doesn't get into the quite the same power games. She's a very calming influence uh, at the moment anyway. I mean, she's finishing up her term with, with Germany, so who knows what happens after that. But she's been an amazing calming influence both in the EU for monetary policy, but also for foreign policy, for the, you know, holding the line on, yes, we can support all of these immigrants that are coming in. No, it's not a terrible thing holding the far right at bay somewhat, although the last election, you know, that tide turned a little bit. So I think she is a, a really fascinating example of you don't have to be this, like, she demagogue, you know, glad-handing kind of piece of crap to be a really popular politician, right? You right. can be someone who just gets the job done well and, you know, tells it like it is and you know, gets things done in the right way above board and... I would like to think that there are more people like that out there. The current sort of political climate doesn't seem to yeah. have them rise to the top, but <laughs> hopefully we can get back there. Okay. What's your favorite books? There are some really fascinating books that changed the way that I thought about service, one of which was Starship Troopers, which is by Robert Heinlein. Not the movie, which yeah. like, <laughs> was sort of a, a bizarre camp <laughs> interpretation like a mixture of, it. of uh, that book and uh, Starcraft. Yeah, yeah, it was kind of way over the top. But the book focused a lot more on questions of service and, you know, is do you deserve to vote as a birthright or do you have to earn the right to vote somehow? And in his particular case, it was it was a very specific view of like you have to serve in the military in order to be a citizen and then in order to vote, which is not really where, you know, where I sit. But it was an interesting interesting conversation to then have with people is to go like, well, do you deserve to vote just because you happen to be born in the United States? What if you have done a ton of great works and then come to the U.S.? Do you, why do you have to do so much more work to be able to be part of the country that then purports to be sort of a melting pot? The people who come and serve in the military that are not U.S. citizens, that use it as a pathway to citizenship, you know, I can get behind that. You know, you're putting your life on the line in order to sort of serve the country, so that makes sense as well. And it's it was a really interesting way to think about service and how do you participate in something and do you give back first? Do you try and give in order to then be rewarded? Do you never give back? Do you just sort of take and go, yeah, no, I deserve all of this. This is great. I'm just going to sit my ass on the couch and just enjoy the fruits of having been born in the right place. Um which obviously is not where I sort of <laughs> sit on it from my from my response. So I believe a lot in giving back, and that was that was an interesting. That was the first book I read that sort of talked about it in that way. Heinlein's specific view on it, I don't quite buy into, which is that you have to serve in the military to be a citizen. Right. I think that's not correct, but I do like the idea of somehow giving back, of participatory democracy, and being part of the cycle and trying to be part of the improvement as well. Beyond that, I think. 
There are some. I loved this book, uh, The Tao of Physics, which is uh, written by Fritjof Capra. And he is such a fascinating guy. I don't know how he found time for this, but he's a, a dual PhD in, uh, in like particle physics and world religions or something. And okay. so he talks about the history of those things and how they intertwine over time. I see. Any interesting things we should know about you? No. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. No, I, the, right now, my big focus is on getting people aware of the startup ecosystem in Philly, helping companies grow, helping people figure out how to do more and better while still maintaining a bit of balance. I mean, I've got a, a young kid, one and a half year old. And so it's a constant struggle for me to figure out how to, how to balance time with, with my son and with my wife and with career and, you know, try and have a little bit of alone time every now and then. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, not that that's a unique situation, but it, I think it gets harder as careers grow. And especially in the startup world as a, as either a founder or a senior leader, you know, you, you feel such deep ownership that it's, it feels disingenuous to really shut off sometimes. And I know a lot of founders feel like this. And so how do you figure out how to balance it such that you're still giving it your all, but you're also giving your family the focus that it needs and yourself, you know, you got to work out or you got to, you know, whatever it is that you do to relax. Maybe it's meditation or uh, yoga or running or whatever rugby. yeah rugby so uh you know it was a great way to reduce my aggression when i was younger get just get out in the field and hit some things but how often would you do that rugby yeah back when i was playing we would have practice twice a week and then we'd have tournaments on our matches on saturdays oh. so it was awesome it was really right. fun but it took it took a lot of time so i don't have unfortunately i don't have really time for that these mm. days but, but i do miss it rugby was really great nice okay do you know anything that you want to replace it with like instead of rugby well, yeah, I mean, I'm getting a bit older now, so I don't, a rugby probably is not really the same option for me because I probably just injure myself. I think I try and get out and ride my bike a bit every now and then. I try and do like a trail run uh, once in a while. <laughs> so, I mean, for me, it's it's a mix of of running and biking, partially because it's meditative for me as well. I really miss the team sports stuff, but it's just hard to coordinate mm-hmm. because a lot of that happens right when I put my son down to sleep. So, right. you know, that's yeah. that's hard. Uh, so maybe in a few years I'll be able to do that again. Okay. What's the one skill that you want to work on next year? Let's see. There's a few skills that I, I continuously try and work on. One is self-reflection, meaning that there's we all kind of automatically start to make assumptions based on prior experience, right? Which is good in general. It's probably the way in which we learn in new environments and stuff. But it can be really negative if I'm applying a lesson from a previous experience incorrectly to a new experience. And so I try and really be clear about what my assumptions are about a new environment, about a new situation. And something like I'll often actually write them down and, you know, I'll go, okay, my gut tells me that I should do this. Why would I do that? Why does that make sense? Why am I making that decision? And I, you know you can overthink this stuff too. It can get sounds like great Dalia's uh, pulse a little bit. Uh, yeah, yeah, somewhat. Uh, there's it comes originally from, or not originally. Uh, the way I know it from is from uh, product development methodology, where you try and map out all of your assumptions about a market, and then you try and prove disprove those assumptions over time. But this is true for general decision making as well, and it helps me divorce the kind of emotional gut reaction, which is sometimes right but often not. <laughs> and so it sort of divorces it a little bit. So I, I try and work on like, 
what are the facts of the matter? And am I just like knee jerk reacting to something? Is there another way that I can tackle this all? And then the other is just humility. I don't think of myself as a really cocky person, but I have been told that I come off as sort of a lecturer or like a college professor <laughs> kind of responder sometimes. Probably the beard. Yeah, probably the beard. Yeah, it's probably, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot that goes into it. But so, so a big part of it for me is when I'm asking a question, I try not to lecture. I try not to sort of say, well, you know, the, the origin of this is yada, yada, yada. And like, which is fine, maybe in a podcast or when I'm explaining something that I, I know a bit about in the business world, not good when I'm trying to talk to my wife about like, you know, where, where we're going to go to dinner or something oh, like yeah. that. And so I, I really have to check myself sometimes. And also when you're in situations where you really want honest feedback or you want someone's honest take or opinion, it takes a lot to set the stage so that they feel comfortable sharing those opinions and not trying to tell you what they think you want to hear. And that's an ongoing challenge that probably gets harder as I get older because, you know, you gain more experience. You have probably a lot more a lot more answers for certain types of things. And then, of course, new technologies you have no answers for. We'll have to, our young account managers will have to show me how to use whatever the next Snapchat is and yeah. <laughs> all that stuff. But, yeah, those are two things that I'm definitely working on. Okay. And uh, where can people find out more information about you? Well, I mean, obviously, my, uh, my LinkedIn has <laughs> some info. But in general, come reach out to me. I'm on, I guess I'm on Twitter. It's Bentropy, I-T-S-B-E-N-T-R-O-P-Y. But really just uh, send me an email, bwilliams at xntechnologies.com, and we'd love to have a coffee or uh, maybe hire you. <laughs> okay, great. All right, thanks for the interview. Of course. Thanks for listening. I hope you got a nugget or two that you can use to grow your own company. I started this podcast because I had a lot of painful blind spots while running my own company and wanted to prevent the same mistakes for my audience and also to learn from people in the trenches. Personally, my biggest pain point was my office lease. After I closed down my company, I decided to focus helping people with their commercial real estate needs. The space could be an office, co-working, retail, restaurant, whatever it is. If you or you know anyone that have commercial needs, feel free to reach out to me for questions about tenant representation. I strongly recommend getting good representation as it doesn't cost the company a dime, since the landlord factors the cost and their price, whether they are represented or not. Not only do we help you find a space, but we work with you to structure the contract to tailor the risk and space to fit your company culture. And if issues come up years later, we will be there to help you at no cost to you. I can be reached by LinkedIn at David Park, Rethink Real Estate, R-E-T-H-I-N-C, Real Estate, also by email, david at rethink, R-E-T-H-I-N-C, realestate.com.